The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Psalm 12 is on page 422 if you're using the Bible underneath your seat. If you would stand with me for the reading of God's word. Psalm 12, starting in verse 1. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all the flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. This is the word of the Lord. Let's uh, travel back in time just for a little bit. I want you to picture me in seventh grade, a little shorter, way scrawny, running around East Middle School in Alton, Illinois, all right? I had on tight black jeans that looked like I was headed to a flood somewhere. I had on a a bright orangish yellow shirt that said, Go Hornets, and it had a hornet on it. That was our, our school mascot back then. And I was wearing zero deodorant. Okay? You you have this picture in your mind? Now, I want you to continue with that image and picture me sitting in a reading and literature class on the third floor of the school. I wasn't paying attention to the the teacher or listening. I I was a a C&D student. What I was doing, though, was reading and rereading these two posters that hung on the wall in that room. I had no earthly idea what they meant, but I found them more interesting than the teacher. And so, I would just read them and reread them, and I want to tell you what they said. One of them said this, truth is stranger than fiction by Mark Twain. And at the time, I was like, I don't know who this Mark Twain cat is, but that doesn't make any sense at all. And the other one read, a slip of the foot you may soon recover, but a slip of the tongue you may never get over by Benjamin Franklin. And I was like, that's the guy that made the light bulb. I know who that guy is, right? Well, thankfully, as I got older, I've learned the actual meaning of these posters. And over the years, I've found myself going back to them, particularly the second one. A slip of the foot you may soon recover, but a slip of the tongue you may never get over. I mean, it's true, right? Like, like you can be outside doing some yard work or a sport and and twist your ankle, break your ankle, you go to the doctor, you get a cast, you take care of it, you're you're probably going to be okay, right? But if you break your word, if you break a promise, if a promise that was made to you is broken, that can hurt and haunt you for a lifetime, right? Well, as I was reading through Psalm 12 this past week, the text that we're going to look at this morning, I kept thinking about this quote and the power of words. The people that we're going to read about in Psalm 12, they were using their words not to bring good, but to bring harm 
to bring destruction. And what's more, these weren't like casual or accidental slips like, oops, oh my gosh, I didn't mean to say that. that. That's not what we're talking about. The people in Psalm 12, they were speaking lies, they knew it, and they loved it. And they had no plans of changing. This psalm, Psalm 12, as you're turning there, if you haven't already, it's known as a, a community lament, which is just a fancy way of saying that this psalm expresses deep sadness on behalf of God's people, N not a sole individual. This isn't David just expressing one of his concerns. No, he is expressing the hearts of God's people and the sadness of a nation. And specifically, as we said before, it related to lies, but also flattery and doublespeak. No matter where David looked and no matter where the people of God in that day and age looked, all they saw was arrogance, self-importance, and pride. As you're going to see, God's people in the psalm, they felt like they were drowning. And David, the author of this psalm, he's the mouthpiece for God's people in this chapter as he shares this community lament. Now, as we go through, there, there's going to be a, a pretty easy way to, to break up this text. It'll be two sections. Verses 1 through 4, David and the people, he's expressing how they were surrounded by those people whose words could not be trusted. That's verses 1 through 4. And then verses 5 through 8, David shows us the remedy to the situation. When you are surrounded by those people whose words cannot be trusted, you are to focus on the one whose words are utterly and always dependable, God Himself. So let's pray, and then we'll jump into this community lament together. God, we're grateful for Your Word. It clearly and plainly presents You to us, and God, I pray, I pray that we would be challenged and changed by that. I pray that You would speak to us, reveal Yourself to us, show us how You want us to live, show us what You want us to believe, show us what You want us to feel, and show us what You want us to share. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Psalm 12, beginning in verse 1. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. So David begins with a cry for help. He's like, Lord, we need some, some help down here. Save us. We are your covenant people, and it kind of feels like we're in short supply. The more I think about this verse and kind of roll it around in my mind, I think you can sense the loneliness and isolation that David was expressing on behalf of himself and God's people. Look at the text again. He said, the godly one is gone. The faithful have vanished. Where have they vanished from? The text says, from among the children of man. This is just another way of saying from all of humankind. David's like, look, I look to my left, I look to my right, I look in front, I look behind, I see no one. No one who loves the truth and loves the Lord. No one. I want to pause here, though, and, and remind ourselves of something. David wasn't actually alone in that day and age. He, he wasn't actually the only believer left. I think David is describing to us how he felt. Uh, I'm reminded of another passage in 1 Kings 19. If you remember the story, Elijah's talking to God, and Elijah says to him, Lord, I'm the only covenant follower left. And then God goes on to say, actually, there are about 7,000 covenant followers left. So why did Elijah say that, and why did David say what he did? I think because we were getting a glimpse into their hearts. 
they were trying to communicate how it actually felt in that moment, right? And I think both of them felt isolated, cut off, and friendless. And, and so we're talking about back then. Let, let, let's take a step just for a moment into today. I think that all of us can relate to this as followers of Jesus. You know, let's say that you're at work and you're, you're trying to do the right thing. You're not cutting corners like many people do at your job. You're not taking extra time at lunch. You're not coming in late. You're not leaving early. You're not writing a little program so that your mouse spins in circles and your boss thinks that you are actually working, right? And you're doing that because of your commitment to the Lord. You're doing that because it is what's right. And because of your commitment to the Lord and because you do what's right, you're mocked. You're snubbed. You're mistreated. You're excluded. You're judged. They talk bad about you. They talk down to you. David and Elijah knew what this was like. Feeling alone while honoring the Lord, it's not new, and it will continue. Look at verse 2. David goes forward in this picture that he's painting about what life was like for him and God's people. He said, everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. So, so Dave, this is where David is like, you want to know what it's like to live in my day and age? And, and he, he pulls the curtain back. He's like, this is what it's like. Everybody lies to everybody. Everybody lies to their neighbor. And who does the text say that these deceivers were speaking these untruths to? I, I said it before, neighbor. People that you are supposed to be close to. People that you can rely on and trust. Those in your close proximity. But those are the people that people are lying to. Let's break down each one of these sins here. We've got lies, flattering lips, and double heart. So lies, you, you know what that is, right? It's empty talk, words with no truth behind them, or even vanity. Uh, you probably know somebody, when, somebody like this. Like, this is the person that you think to yourself, okay, I'm going to see so-and-so today. I cannot believe a word that they say, right? This is that person who lies. What about flattering lips? This is somebody who is a smooth talker. They are insincere. With their flattering lips, they make false promises. They're hypocrites. People like this, their goal is not to communicate with you, but to manipulate you. That's their aim. They say one thing, the thing that you want to hear, and then they do the opposite so that they can get what they want. I, I read a, a quote from a commentary. I want to share it with you. It says this, Flattery is deadly because it gives pleasure and creates addiction. That's so true, right? Like the person who is being flattered, like they like that. And then they're like, well, that was really good. I want some more of that. That's the problem though. It's deadly. It's only being said in an effort to manipulate. Finally, the third phrase here was having a double heart. And this literally translates as having a heart and having a heart. Like literally having two hearts in your body. What's that mean? Well, somebody with two hearts thinks like this. They say, I see what I want, and I'm going to reveal this heart to that person in an effort to get that thing. I'm not going to show them my real heart. I'm not going to show them who I truly am, because if I do that, I won't get what I want. So I'm going to show them this and conceal this. This is a double-hearted individual. You're probably familiar with the phrase, uh, that person speaks out of both sides of his mouth right? That's a double-hearted person. 
So if we were to meet a person who personified all of these attributes, or even just one of them, but all three of them, and we knew it, we would have like little alarm bells going off, right? Like, okay, I got to put up my guard. I can't believe what's going on here. I mean, if you can't trust a person's words, what can you trust? Well, this is the main beef of David and his people. They're saying, Lord, what are we supposed to do when deception is everywhere? What do we do? Now, I, I, I want to pause here and, and offer some reflection because I think it's appropriate. We hear this and we're like, good night, like these people sound terrible. You know, the, 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 the people who are lying and flattering and, and double speaking, like, wouldn't that have been horrible? Like, can you imagine life with those dirt bags? Well, I want to offer you a, a sobering piece of information. This text does not make clear if these people who are uttering lies are from within the church or outside the church. This chapter does not make clear if this is people of the faith or people outside of the faith. And I say this because it's so easy to point fingers and say, how could they lie all the time? How could they only use words to get what they wanted? How could they say one thing and then do another thing? How could they do that? It's so easy to point the finger and ask that. You know what's not easy, though? To sit in the quiet of a moment and stare at your reflection in the mirror and say, why do I lie all the time? Why do I say things only to get what I want? Why am I one person today and then a different person tomorrow? I think this passage rightly should bring us to the place where we are evaluating the culture around us. But I also think that it should rightly cause us to look within and ask really hard questions. So the picture in verses 1 and 2 here, it's pretty bleak, right? It's, it's pretty ominous. It's hopeless. Thankfully, though, it only gets worse from here. There is hope, though. Look at verses 3 and 4. We, we get a glimpse of hope, and then full, hope comes into full view a little later. Look at verse 3. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongues we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? It's a pretty severe language right here, right? If you take this literally, flattering lips are to be cut off, tongues are to be cut out. You know, we hear this and we think, like, well, that's kind of gross, and it is kind of gross. However, I would argue that David is actually saying something here, shockingly, that's worse than the text actually presents. I, I think David is speaking figuratively here. I think what he's actually doing, asking the Lord to do is to snuff them out, to take them away, to cut them down, to banish them, to uproot them, to consume them. All of those phrases are a part of what is used here in Psalm 12. These are alternative meanings of David's words here. This should be sobering to us. The lips that flattered in verse 2 are the lips that David asks would be ruined in verse 3. Did you see in verse 4 how it seems like David is quoting the spirit of the day? He's, he's quoting the enemies of that day. We will prevail. Who is master over us? Man, that's bold. We will prevail. Who are they saying they prevail over? The Lord. Who is the master that they don't recognize? The Lord. The sin here is autonomy. David's enemies, the enemies of God's people, they thought they were accountable to no one. 
As I was thinking about this, I remembered back to Exodus 4. You remember the, the story with Moses and God tells Moses, he's like, listen, you're going to go talk to Pharaoh on my behalf and, and on behalf of the people. And uh, Moses is freaking out. He's like, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to say. and My mouth don't work right and I don't have good words. And do you remember what God said to him? Exodus 4 verses 11 and 12 read this way. Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord, now therefore go? And I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. These evildoers of the day in David's day had forgotten Exodus 4. God owned them, but they thought they owned themselves. So thus far in the psalm, David has focused on the evildoers themselves. He's like zoomed in on them and what they're doing. Well, in verse 5, he zooms out a little bit and he says, do you want to know what life looks like in all of what's going on because all these people are lying? Let me give you a glimpse. That's verse 5. And what's more, what's awesome about verse 5 is we see God's supernatural response to bring remedy and relief. Look at verse 5. Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. David makes a really interesting claim here. He says that because lies permeate the culture, because of the flattery, because of the doublespeak, because of all of that, it has impacted the poor. Do you see the cause and effect? Like, that's what he's saying here. The lies, the flattery, the double-heartedness has led to, quote, plundering of the poor and groans from the needy. I'll be totally transparent with you. I struggled with this for days, trying to figure out the correlation. Like, I believe God's Word is true, and so I believe this passage is true, but I'm like, how can lies from the masses impact the poor? You know, if we could, uh, I think Jonathan said last week, you know, if we could get a DeLorean and, and go back to David or bring David here, and, and I would say, like, David, where did you see this in your life? What, what were you talking about right here in this verse? I think I have a guess. Now, I'm, I'm just a guy, right? Just a man, not, not, not anything. I think that David and us could both point at something, his day, our day, and and I'm going to group this, I'm going to say four words, four or five words together, but I'm going to group them, I'm going to group them all together even though they're not always totally related. Here they are. I think that David and us could point to politics, people in power and leadership, and legislation. I think that both of us could point to those things and say, lies in these areas devastate the poor. Let me give you an example, okay? So let's say that there's a person who is trying to get into a position of power, politics, school district, whatever, okay? They might say things like, before they're in power, I promise you that I will fill in the blank, right? Whatever, put it in there. And then once they're in charge, they say, oh, I guess I should have clarified earlier. I made that promise, but what I actually meant by that was, and then fill in the blank. I mean, we've seen that, right? And I guarantee you, because it's human nature, David saw this as well. And I think it is with that recognition that we can ask ourselves, 
What people groups are often impacted when promises are not kept? The poor. Those people who actually need help. And what do those broken promises bring? Harm. And that is why God is responding to this situation. The poor are being plundered and the needy are groaning. He will now arise. It's time to act. So I was thinking about this, this imagery, you know, this part of the verse here. And Do you remember when you were a kid and you're acting a fool and you're at home and mom and dad are on the couch or maybe in the kitchen and, or sitting out in the yard in a couple of lawn chairs and, and you're like doing something stupid and you're like looking over to make sure mom and dad are still seated, that they're like not watching in your area. And you're like, oh, they're still seated. I'm good. I can be stupid. And then you keep doing your foolish thing. And then you see dad get up and you're like, oh, snap. I'm going to be in trouble now. Like I'm caught, right? That's the imagery that comes to mind for me when I read this verse. When God rises, he rises to act. And when God acts in the context like this, he is a warrior, okay? He's a warrior. I want to read to you Psalm 3-7. This psalm uses the exact same word that verse 5 uses here, arise. You're going to see it in Psalm 3-7. You're going to see the warriorness of God on display. Listen to the verse. It reads, arise, O Lord. There it is. Save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. That's the God who arises in Psalm 12, verse 5. That is not the God that I want to be against. That is not the God that I want to be my adversary. So the poor people are taken advantage of and they're mistreated and God rises to execute discipline. This should not come as a surprise to us, nor to David, nor to the people of his day. Deuteronomy 15.11 reads this way, For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, text doesn't stop there, to the needy and to the poor in your land. They knew this, but they weren't doing it. And what was God's reaction? He would bring judgment to them, and He would bring safety to His people. That's what verse 5 says. Now, does this mean that God's plan of rescue, God's plan of safety for the poor is to make them rich? I don't think so. I think God's solution is more permanent than that. God wanted His people to look at Him and His words. He says, don't believe the lies, don't believe the flattery, don't believe the doublespeak. My words can be trusted. Look to me. Look at verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Do you see the contrast that's going on here? God's words are pure, they're refined, they're purified, as compared to the lies and flattery and double-heartedness that takes place earlier in the text. Whose words are trustworthy? God's words are trustworthy. There, there's some interesting imagery here with this idea of the silver being refined in a, a furnace. If you're not familiar with it, it's, it's pretty simple. So to get purified silver, gold, any precious metal, in its undiluted form, you've got to refine it in a furnace. And so it's a, it's a device that can be different shaped, but there's like a, a, a cup or a, a cavern where you would pour the, or you'd put the, the solid metal in there, and it would get so hot that it would literally like boil out, burn off the impurities. Well, God uses this comparison to say, my words are like 
pure silver. And oh, by the way, it's not silver that was purified one time. It's silver that was purified seven times. Perfection in the Bible. God's words are perfect. That's what he's saying. What was David to take from this? And what were the people to take from this illustration? And, and what are we to take from this? The words of the wicked are false, but the words of the Lord are flawless. That's what we need to know. You see, this contrast of verses 1 through 4 and then 5 and 6, it, it really should stun us. It really should knock us back a little bit. What a relief it is for us to know that we have a good and steadfast God in the midst of all the darkness that surrounds us. And since God's words are so pure and they were pure to David, David could pray this prayer of assurance that he did in verse 7. Look at the prayer. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. So it's interesting, the, the word them there, you, O Lord, will keep them. Who's them? Scholars debate, is it the poor and needy of verse 5 and the godly of verse 1? Totally could be, I think. Other scholars say it is the pure words of verse 6. He will keep his words. I don't know which one it is, but I do know that God will keep his people and God will keep his word. We can take that to the bank. God is trustworthy. And as we, as we come to this point in the psalm, it really feels like the psalm could end right here at verse 7. I mean, that's, that's where Psalm 11 ended last week, like on a really positive note. You're like, you know, you're fired up, you're ready to go. God's going to avenge and, and he's going to provide and he's going to care for. This isn't the end of the psalm. Look at verse 8. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. When I first read this, I'm like, what? Like, Lord, comma, David, are, are you sure you, this is where you want to end it? And I think herein lies the paradox. God promises to keep and guard the faithful, yet the faithful must remain in a world where the wicked prowl. God promises to guard and keep the faithful, and yet the faithful must remain in a world where the wicked prowl. Verse 8 seems to suggest that the situation described in verses 1 through 4 just continued on. Yes, verse 7 teaches us that the Lord, Yahweh, rules over all, but we're told in verse 8 that chaos continues. I don't know about you, but I have to ask myself, what am I to do with that? How am I to process that? Here's the conclusion that I've come to. I think that there is a tension here. David ended this psalm, I think, on purpose. He was teaching us that it is God's desire that we are to be constantly dependent on verse Him, constantly dependent on Him, not rest in verse 7 and think, I'm good, my work is over, I'm done, God's going to take care of me, life is easy, I'm going to do what I want to do. No, there has to be a constant dependence upon Him. Out of all the words that we hear, His words alone can be trusted. And I think it is with that assurance that we can press on until the time of Yahweh's now. Did you see that word now in verse 5? L look at verse 5. Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now 
Arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. When is now? We, we could take it literally, right? Did God bring relief and justice to his people in David's day? I think so, in part, but not totally. We must remind ourselves, hear me on this, God's ultimate victory is not instant. Scripture teaches us that both wheat and weeds will grow together until harvest. And this text stands as is and I think makes its point forcefully. Both the words of truth and the words of lies will be ever-present realities. Therefore, trust God. Both will always be here. Therefore, trust God. You know, I think we could look at this passage as like a, you know, in in summary, application-wise, and rightly apply it by talking about the importance of speaking the truth, the power of the tongue, caring for the poor. I I think those would all be valid applications. However, I I think the, the primary thrust of this psalm is different. I think the, the, the primary thrust of this song is God saying, chaos surrounds you. Lies are everywhere. Darkness consumes. Trust me. Trust my words. I will never lie to you. My words are perfection. I will bring judgment and I will save. If you're here this morning and you are in Christ, I think that this psalm can serve as a model for you as you experience oppression. This song should build up in you and direct your heart to the reality that God is sovereign. He is in absolute control. A day is coming when He will finally and totally make all things right, but until that day comes, like the psalmist, you are to trust God and find peace. Even though evil may abound, God is still God. He will bring justice, and your destiny is secure. You could say it in summary. We are to trust God even as evil abounds. He brings justice and salvation. So that's for believers. If you are here this morning and you are not a believer, verses 3 and 4, they are for your ears. Let me read them again. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us. Who is master over us? If you're here this morning and you are not in Christ, these verses are about you. You have made great boasts. You have claimed to not have a master. You have dethroned God and enthroned yourselves. But you do have a master. You do have a judge, and you've sinned against him, and yet he's made a way for you to be restored. He's made a way for that relationship to be what it was originally designed to be, and that way is through his son, Jesus. He was your substitute on the cross. He died in your place so that you might have life and that you might spend eternity with your Father in heaven. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for your word. It's timeless. No matter where we go, we can open and we are faced with truth. 
we, we see sin and we see sin in ourselves. God, I pray that we would be people who recognize you for what you are, that you are Lord over all. We are not kings and queens. We are not rulers. We are not masters. You are. May we submit. In Jesus' name, amen.